I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Today's guest is Sam Shapiro. Sam's founder and CEO of Grounded, which is a team of ex-basics engineers building the future of outdoor recreation. So we start with electric camper van, hot off their G2 launch and road trip, and we would talk about the, the cool stuff they're doing in the electric camper van space, but just scratching the surface with the vision and where ground is going. So we talk about the genesis, where they are now, where the company's going, how Sam's thinking about building the company, and a bunch of other really, really cool stuff. So um, I'll, I'll leave the intro here for now. Please enjoy this conversation with Sam Shapiro. Today, I'm joined by Sam Shapiro. Sam, thanks for coming to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, fun fun space, I think. Uh, recreational vehicle space, I don't think I've covered so far on the podcast. And I, I really like the angle, what you guys are doing at Grounded. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, would you mind starting things off and introducing yourself and what you're doing at Grounded? Sure. Uh, my name is Sam Shapiro. I am the founder of Grounded Electric RVs. We, um, we're building electric RVs. Really, we want to be a global outdoor recreation technology brand. So we're starting with uh, an electric camper van product that we just brought to market. It's a 250-mile range electric camper van. We have a towable electric trailer planned for next year, um, and we also are, are starting to think about some other some other product lines in the future. Cool. And how'd you find yourself in this space? Yeah, it was uh, not something I could have predicted prior to uh, prior to COVID. But basically, I was living in New York City, uh, working in in tech, and um, COVID happened, and basically. After some time, I wanted to 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 travel and kind of get out and uh, move around and see some other places. But obviously, you know, you couldn't really fly and couldn't really even spend time in cities. And so 
um, I ended up, uh, it, kind of a story how, how I got to that point, but I ended up building a camper van and traveling around the country in the van and living in it full time and working remotely from the van full time um, for, for several months. And that was really what sparked my passion for um, for this space. That was my first time ever in any kind of recreational vehicle. Um, and, you know, and then the electric part kind of came from some problems with the with the gas powered aspects, both of the, of the vehicle and also what that meant for the interior electronics and stuff like that. Yeah, we'll definitely get back to that. But I, I think if you're listening to this and you're like me, you're like, well, typical person when they say they want to get outside more, they they buy or they rent a camper van. They don't they don't build one. <laughs> Can you talk to like what 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 led to that? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I I think I needed a project and I'm definitely someone that likes to dive in and I like new challenges and I like, um, yeah, there's something really fun and exciting and fulfilling about jumping into something I know absolutely nothing about and trying to learn as much as I can, or at least enough to be dangerous. Uh, so <clears throat> I actually had never done any woodworking of any kind. I really was not a person who had used like even tools a lot. Uh, and I had never done any electronic, uh, like electrical engineering of any kind. And so, um, you know, w what happened is I, I was kind of driven by, uh, p partially by the challenge and partially by wanting to save money. <laughs> um, so, you know, w what kind of happened was I was looking for uh, a vehicle that, you know, my girlfriend at the time and I could could kind of go around in and, and work, we both worked a lot. So like work from and not have to like reset up camp all the time. And um, and I started looking first at RVs, like big motorhome classic RVs. And those were insanely expensive. I mean, even just looking at, you know, could could we rent one for a month was it was so much money and it felt just a bit out of reach. Um, and then I kind of accidentally stumbled upon this world of camper vans and all these, you know, DIY van builds out there. And so seeing all of the people out there who had kind of done DIY builds gave me a lot of, you know, inspiration, uh, you know, a lot of YouTube videos <laughs> watched yeah. and yeah, I mean, I just, I just kind of, um, you know, I mean, yeah, it was, it was a COVID project, you know, and, um, <clears throat> I was working full time, but nights and weekends I was spending all, you know, every other second of the day kind of learning w w enough woodworking to build out all the furniture and everything like that. And enough of the electronics to put in the battery system and the solar panels and, um, you know, all of the appliances inside. So, um, and it was a small van. It was, it was a Chevy express 2001, you know, used van with, with, you couldn't stand up in it. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And I'd be curious to exchange notes. I mean, so, so you, you came with a lot more software and design experience than I did at the time. But when I think about like, so I, I studied mechanical engineering, worked at Boeing on the production floor, process engineering, manufacturing engineering for a couple of years doing, like I was defining refining processes for manufacturing things. 
but I feel like I didn't actually understand design process and engineering and manufacturing until I bought a hundred year old house and renovated like every room in the house and did a bunch of plumbing and electrical work and drywall and stuff. And like those situations in which I had to, from the ground up, define requirements for myself and then figure out what materials and options were in my hand, define how I was going to approach it and timing. Like, I feel like I learned so much more about how to actually build things and bring them to the world through that experience than any of my schooling or anything before that. And and so what, yeah, you mentioned you hadn't done woodworking. I know you had a lot of software experience previously. What what was that process or what was that like for you? And where, where did you come to like, where were there any kind of aha moments? Oh man. Um, aha moments. That's interesting. I mean, I, I really, um, yeah, I mean, I think when I get excited about a project, I really dive in. So I, 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 I mean, I could add to that list of things I hadn't really done before, um, actual 3D modeling myself. And I, I found this, this iPad software, uh, and I, and I kind of, I kind of spent a lot of time doing the 3D modeling of the interior because I was, I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put some money into this and a lot of time into it. And I want to make sure that I'm, making something that, that I like. And also you have such a limited space to work with. Um, so that was a, I guess you could say a little bit of an aha moment of just here's, you know, here's, here's how powerful the design process can be, uh, up front. Um, uh, but you know, but then the flip side of it too, is that, you know, I could, I could just as easily say that no matter what you put into CAD, there's going to be a million things when you know reality hits hits the road and you know nothing and that's so true for for the company and you know like the first vehicle that grounded built too where you know you deal with tolerancing and you deal with um you know even even things that the that are not reflected in the oem delivered chassis (laughs) you know that are that have bigger tolerance issues than you would think and and so Mm-hmm. I think um, maybe that was an aha moment is d- despite how much designing or preparation you do, there's just going to be lots of surprises and lots of learnings. And so I think um, I'm, I'm kind of like parlaying this into a little bit of an insight about the company, but um, just getting our hands dirty and actually building something and um, and shipping something to customers as quickly as possible, uh, you know, I think. I think that's kind of invaluable yeah. um, and, and, and there's a, there's kind of an upper bound to how, um, you know, kind of diminishing returns on, on the design process, I think before you, before you actually start building. Yeah. And no, I'll, I'll put a pin in that cause I think there's more to explore. Uh, to, yeah. There's more, more to explore there. I guess maybe telling, telling the story then. So, right, so you go through this experience, you, you build your camper van, you go and you're like, Oh, this is pretty cool. You've, you mentioned, yeah. There's there's downsides to the gasoline propulsion system in here. Could could you elaborate on that? So what what where were the things through that process where you're like, oh, it would be nice if I didn't have this engine that I was dealing with? Yeah, well, <clears throat> um, you know, first of all, just the the fact that it was this twenty year old, you know, vehicle and and sort of all the like kind of the the rust and the wear that I was dealing with from that was kind of the first thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the combustion engine, it, I mean, it, it was less during the building process and more during the, the living and driving process where, 
you know, the vehicle broke down at one point, um, you know, and it's like your home on wheels. And so then if you have to take it into the shop, that's, you know, it's like, okay, well, do I have to go get a hotel for the night? Right. So that, so that part, you know, that's a huge issue potentially, you know, when these RVs and stuff break down. The other thing is even, even when they're not breaking down, you're doing maintenance all the time, you're doing oil changes, right? It's just, just all the kinds of things people talk about with the differences between the, the advantages of EVs in general compared to combustion engine vehicles and sort of having uh, had had some experience with EVs, uh, although limited, you know, kind of wanting to get those benefits with the, with the gas-powered camper van. Um, you know, the other thing is that on the on the interior side, you know, what people will do is they'll plug the house battery. So basically you like put this battery in the back, which powers the whole interior. So like you put this battery in, this is in all RVs, even gas powered RVs, right? You put this battery in the back. Usually it's a pretty small battery, maybe, you know, uh, one kilowatt hour, you know, or hundred amp hours type of thing. And it powers the lights. And if you have like an induction stove or a fan, that type of thing. And, um, the problem is like power budgeting is such a thing with RVs and, and camper vans where you have such a limited amount of power in that battery. Like I said, it's a very small battery and, um, and there's usually three ways to charge it. You can charge from solar panels that you might have on the roof. You can charge it from shore power, which is basically just, you know, plugging in a 110 volt, you know, cord into a house outlet or, or maybe you have a 240. Um, that it will just directly charge that house battery that you put in. Um, and then the, the third thing people do is they'll plug it into the alternator. Uh, they'll wire it into the alternator of the engine so that um, not only does the alternator charge the car starter battery, but it also will charge this house battery in the back. And that's, I would say that is where 90% of, you know, RV people are getting their their power from, or, or rather 90% of the of the time you know that's kind of how you're charging that battery right because every time you're going on a road trip and you're driving around and then what will happen is inevitably someone with an rv gas-powered rv will be somewhere like at a campground or they'll be boondocking or or whatever and they'll need some more power you know maybe they want to run the microwave maybe they you know they're low they want to plug in their laptops and uh they'll and i did this too you you don't have any other choice if if the you know if you're not getting enough solar or if it's not sunny and you have limited you know solar power you, what do you do you turn the engine on right and you run the alternator and so you're sitting there and you're running the engine and you're blowing exhaust in the campground and you're making noise and you know it's a similar to like you know sometimes people have generators okay so maybe they're running the generator instead of running the the you know the engine of the car but it's functionally the same thing and it's like do we really want to be sitting at campgrounds or in nature, you know, running a generator or running the combustion engine, um, you know, blowing exhaust, making noise, right? When you're, when what you're trying to do ostensibly is like feel, you know, the peace and serenity <laughs> of nature. So it's this, it's kind of like this juxtaposition. Um, I think there's a lot of those juxtapositions, by the way, with, with RVs and RV life. Like you go to some of these campgrounds and, or RV parks. And I mean, it'll be nighttime and everybody's RVs are completely closed off and they'll have, you can, you can see through the windows, right? When you're just looking around the campground and they'll have the lights on and you can see through it, like the giant flat screen TV and the leather sofas. And so there's this, that's the juxtaposition too, of, of, of people, 
you know, it's like, are you, are you really trying to embrace nature or are you trying to sort of be in this cocoon, um, you know, and, and that's just sort of like exactly, you know, being in your house, but, but just in this campground. Um, so I think there's a lot of those, but, but yeah, that, th- those were some of the things that, you know, got me thinking about the benefits of electric here. Um, and, you know, the other thing is that, like I said, you have this tiny battery usually with, with gas powered RVs. And so what does it look like to have this giant battery? Right. And what does that enable you to do in terms of the interior electronics that you wouldn't really have been able to do in the past, right? Like running HVAC, you know, for much, much longer periods of time that, that takes up a lot of energy or, um, you know, same thing with, with cooking and same thing with, with hot showers and, you know, all these like very energy intensive devices, suddenly you have so much more power, um, that the experience can be a lot more enjoyable. Yeah. And real quick on the, uh, the electric vehicle. So, so I I think there's at times like the the noise and emission thing, like at, at times people don't really understand that equation. Like on the expressway, there's, I'd driven a Tesla Model 3 on the expressway, which is a lot louder than other cars, ICE vehicles, because like it's surface friction and it's wind noise. That's the primary NVH drivers when you're on the expressway. But it is night and day at low speeds. Like my, I have a plug-in hybrid and when my battery's dead and I'm driving even through my, through my neighborhood, like it's such a nicer experience when it's electric mode, it's quiet, it feels nice. You don't have the vibrations to the vehicle. Like at that if I extrapolate that to the nature, I feel like that, that feels so much more natural. Plus you take the fact that you don't have particulate mass and emissions that are coming out of the tailpipe. And then when you, I imagine this idling situation is even more extreme, right? Cause like if you don't need to idle, it's completely silent. You don't have this experience. Whereas that's gotta be like the most annoying thing. Right, <laughs> you're yeah, sitting yeah. there trying yeah. to enjoy a campfire. You're trying to read a book, trying to have good conversation, play games, whatever. And, and then you got people firing up, yeah, generators or having the their vehicles idle. Like, I just wanted to put a pin in that point. Yep. No, absolutely. And then, how, how do you think about so on the the juxtaposition side? So when you think about optimizing for picking up my bedroom and living room and moving it into a forest versus trying to have an experience in which you are immersed in nature and becoming more grounded um those types of like wh- where what, what's do you does grounded have a stance on kind of the, the type of the products that you're providing is there a right person or right experience that you're catering towards yeah i mean yeah exactly like we are part of a big part of our mission is connecting people to nature and the outdoors and so um you know there's this book, um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, where he, you know, kind of talks about a similar phenomenon with motorcycles versus riding a motorcycle versus, you know, driving in a car, right? Where when you're in a car, it's like watching reality through a screen. You know, when you're on a motorcycle, you're, you're experiencing the world. Um, you're part of it. You're not, you're not watching it through a screen. And so I think about that a lot with RVs. I think that there's a lot of RVs designed out there that are very cocoony and 
you know, that's something that, that we think about. And I would say that it influences some of the product design and some of the planned features on the roadmap and planned future products and, and just kind of how we think about design and really wanting people to feel, you know, obviously you want to be protected from the elements. I mean, that's why you're in one of these vehicles in the first place, as opposed to, to being, you know, maybe in a tent, but, um, but I think there's something in the middle, you know, that's, that's really nice and, you know, helps you feel connected to nature, you know, in between being in a tent and being in a house. Yeah. And can you talk to, so the G2 you guys announced and yeah, it's a functioning vehicle we've taken on cool, cool road trip that you can follow and, and take and look at. Maybe you can, you can talk more about that if you'd like, but I'm, I'm really curious, how, how did you define the requirements for this vehicle? Like what, what are you targeting? What, what are your customers, the people who are going to buy this? What are they looking for in a vehicle and how do you think about designing the vehicle to meet those needs? Yeah. So there's kind of like three, I would say main principles with the, with the G2, which we just launched last week, as you said, um, so it's a 250 mile range electric camper van. It's the longest range electric camper van out there. I mean, there's not many electric camper vans period, but it's certainly the longest range one by far. And I think the only feasible one in terms of range, because obviously with this type of vehicle, you want to be able to drive at least reasonable distances on a single charge. Um, you know, I would say there's kind of three, there's three principles. One is, one is the electric part, the EV part and wanting it to be needing it to be long range. So that was sort of the first requirement. Um, the second is on the interior, uh, we built this built and designed this sort of modular system so that people can customize the layout inside the vehicle. This is, you know, I mean, essentially it's, it's it is a bit like a house, right? Um, and customization is very important. There's a huge, huge variety of people who you know who who want these and who drive these and own these one in one in 10 american households owns an rv which is kind of a crazy stat and so uh obviously like having one kind of fixed floor plan for all um you know it's gonna have limited appeal and so our sort of solution to that was to design this almost lego like system where people can choose from a library of components that we have and choose sort of where, you know, mix and match components and and where they go and pieces of furniture. Um, And so the, and then the third principle was, uh, or or sort third sort of, uh, I guess, requirement uh, was having, you know, better technology inside the vehicle. So a lot of the RVs today still have pretty limited, um, you know, limited technology and, you know, control systems that are very kind of uh, disconnected, you know, you'll have one, one panel for the HVAC and one panel for the lights and one panel for the generator. And um, so we really wanted to have a more integrated and, uh, you know, remote, accessible, digital kind of monitoring and control experience of the vehicle. So kind of like the Tesla app, but for RVs, so, you know, or, or smart home meets mobility. So basically like, you know, we have this app and you can see what the battery state of charge is. You can see how much solar power is coming in. You can see uh, how much power is being consumed on an individual appliance basis. You can turn things on and off and you can do all of that, whether you're in the vehicle or, you know, remote uh, away from the vehicle. 
Yeah, cool. And how do you think about, I mean, on the tech side, right? So you came from a tech company. Uh, how do you think about finding the right balance and trying to figure out like, what are the things that you've seen experience in the past that you want to pick and move to grounded and uh, apply? Or what are the things that maybe don't fit? I mean, within this conversation of, right, like you can over design and make something that's too techy that then removes yeah. people from nature kind of by, by definition, but you also can design technology in a way that allows people to better embrace the environment around. Like how have you personally and your team thought about finding that right balance? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, uh, the, I mean, this might sound obvious, but I would say the main thing is listening to customers. So, you know, we've, we've had a lot of people reach out to us and give us feedback. And we talk to a lot of people about what they want in, you know, in these vehicles. And so um, I think, I think that does kind of need to be the main driver. And I think that it is easy to, to think like an engineer and just sort of, you know, go crazy with adding things that you think people want, um, or that would be cool to build. Um, but yeah, we, we, we try to stay grounded in, you know, in, in actual customer feedback and, and data points. I think we both applied that word now without intending to, to have it as a pun. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's it, happens, it happens more than you think. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I mean, yeah, it's your, that, that, that makes sense, right? And I, I mean, maybe that gets back to the philosophy that you mentioned early on, right? So there's well, lots of companies innovating in and around the mobility space and different space. And there's a wide range of takes that are uh, approaches that are taken, right? And one of the things that, you know we've, we've talked about is the you guys are on, on the scrappies, a, a, a potentially a word to, you could use, or like you, you're taking a pragmatic Absolutely. approach to building this company, meeting the needs of your like. Yeah, can you can you speak to how you think about that and how that then makes its way into the, the business operations? Yeah, I would say that scrappiness is in our DNA as a company already. Um, and I, and I think it has to, to stay that way, hopefully forever, um, at, at least to some extent. And, um, to me, that's about, you know, it's about grit obviously, and it's about doing a lot with a little, and it's about taking ownership and everybody on the team taking ownership, um, and jumping in and, and adding value wherever it's needed. Um, and so, you know, we, we did that. Um, we've been doing that for the last year, um, you know, par partly out of necessity. I mean, I think some people thought it was a mistake not to raise more money, but we, you know, we, we sort of, um, you know, we did kind of this, this sort of angel initial fundraising round that, you know, really we haven't raised much money at all. And, and we've tried to do a lot with that. And I think that it's, it's, you know, it's a forcing function to, to, to be really intentional and to be really capital efficient and, um, you know, very thoughtful about, about approach and how do we, <clears throat> you know, how do we get something into customers' hands as, uh, quickly and, um, yeah, efficiently as possible. And so, so that's what, that's what we've done. And, uh, you know, I mean, again, with, with, with very little capital raised, we've now shipped multiple six figure vehicles to actual, uh, paying customers. And so 
you know, and in doing that, we've gotten all of the learnings um, of going through that design and manufacturing process and also the learnings from these early customers and the feedback from these early customers. And so, um, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a different way of building a business than, than um, you know, than, than some of the alternatives out there. But um, and, and we do definitely plan to, to kind of scale up significantly next year and, and, and kind of do another fundraising round, um, do like our seed round. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, it's not, it's not like the, the 2021, you know, era of macroeconomics anymore. So you're I not think, defining sex or success based on the amount of money you, you raise and the valuation. Right. Right. Sorry, you're cutting me off. Were you, were you saying anything else? No, just just that, and um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, c- I guess ca- capital efficiency, right? Like yeah. like generating dollar, like dollars generated versus dollars spent. Um, you know, we're definitely uh, we we feel like we're on the right track to something, and and um, you know, and the the more I think efficient you can be at the beginning, the more the value compounds there over time because because we've learned so much so cheaply Mm -hmm. you know and so quickly that then we can take with us as we scale more you know and as we go uh start to you know spend money um so so hopefully all the mistakes we made in the first year and there were definitely a lot um you know i think the goal is like you want to make the mistakes fast and cheap right like the you know you, you can always kind of learn from and to some extent unwind a mistake but it's it's the question is always at what cost and so um you know when a startup runs out of money that's that's kind of it right so um yeah 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 i mean those learning experiences are valuable for de-risking the company right so like the fact if you had to make a decision a year ago about exactly what your ramp curve is going to look like and what success is going to be you know a lot more now than you did then, right? So like the ability to, to make more informed decisions. And like one of the things you, you, you mentioned before, which I want to highlight is like building and selling and delivering vehicles, like back to my analogy of or my anecdote of, of doing work around the house. Like I did not until like I tried to install molding, did I realize that none of these walls are square to each other on any plane. And so like my, the approach that I thought I was going to take to, you know, measure stuff out beforehand and make cuts and do like, that just fundamentally does not work in the type of work that I'm doing. Like you don't, you don't know those things until you go through the experience. And so like, I I imagine you guys going through these first few builds, delivering it, you've learned things that you wouldn't possibly, if you were sitting there polishing your rocks and making Hmm. cooler CAD models. For sure. Well, there's something else uh, that it's my new favorite thing to talk about very recently that I've learned, uh, which is, and this might sound, extremely obvious to say out loud, but, um, for any given task that a company wants to accomplish, there is, uh, literally an unbounded amount of possible money to spend on accomplishing that task. Like you could spend like the, the, the maximum amount of money that you, that a company could spend to accomplish any given task is actually unbounded on the top. Uh, and so I think like, again, I mean, maybe that sounds obvious, but I think for me, 
that's just really solidified uh, and kind of was a light bulb moment for me because it, it just sort of changes how you approach things, you know, because it's like it, it takes a lot of thoughtfulness and intentionality to constantly push yourself and your team to to be as capital efficient as possible, right? It's very easy to be like, okay, let's just go, let's just go hire the, you know, the, the world-class design firm, or let's just go hire, you know, these contractors who've done this a million times, or let's just go hire, you know, this person that ran this group at this, you know, organization in our space or, or whatever it is. Um, it's very easy to throw, money at problems and um sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but but i think there's always an opportunity to like to be really intentional about being more efficient there and accomplishing more you know with sort of what you have or with the smaller team um and so that's that's part of what i mean about the scrappiness being in the dna of the company um you know, because we have done a lot with a little. Uh, and, and so you sort of learn to think that way when you have to. Um, yeah. But I think that that's really valuable. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, that, that's such a, that's such a, I think a rare thing, especially in the startup world to, to have that philosophy and, and approach. So I, I guess the question I'm going to ask doesn't apply in most situations, but I think it applies here based on the way, the way you talk and think. And then I also my, myself, right? I'm, I've been described as a, a cheap individual in, in, in many places. And like that, that makes it, it works in some places, right? And, but you also need to look for, it works in a lot of places. Like let's be intentional about where and when we're spending money and also in building a business when and where to spend money. I also have caught myself a few times going too far of like, I don't know, for example, like going on a trip and like I booked a hotel where I got to, I'm like, well, I cannot leave my laptop anywhere near this hotel room or car because this is not a safe area for me to be saying like well i probably should have spent an extra 30 bucks for getting a, a better hotel um as like a, a bad example but like there are there are situations right where it does make sense to up deploy some capital in a in a sensible way so how how do you think about doing that checks and balances game like yes having this capital efficient mindset but also realizing that there's places where it does make sense to, to get a little helper to to make investments or whatever. I think that there's probably certain heuristics, um, you know, and, and, and obviously one example would be, you know, if, if everyone on the team is, you know, working late nights and putting in all the effort um, and making progress, but still saying, you know, hey, you know, this is at risk of not getting done on time because mm -hmm. we're short on XYZ resource, right? Well, that's, that's, a that's, you know, that might be a clear cut example of, okay, it's a great use of money now to go get that resource that, that the team needs and that we need to, to get this to completion. Um, but I think that, I think that the tendency <clears throat> for a lot of company leaders is to default the other way and default to saying, you know, again, especially, especially big companies, um, you know, with lots and lots of resources, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, 
it's kind of like the gas that, you know, will fill the container <laughs> that you put it in type of thing. So, it, you know, if the resource, if people are really good at using resources that are, that are there and available to them. And, um, and again, I just think that, I think that there's opportunity a, a lot of times to, to, you know, to be scrappier. And I think there's a lot to be gained from it. It's not just about saving money and saving resources. It's, it's like, it, it's these compounding effects of, you know, everybody being more hands-on, everybody learning things for themselves instead of relying on outsourced experts to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to have that knowledge, uh, you know, for them. Uh, it's about, you know, it's about pain, honestly. I mean, so much of this last year since starting Grounded has been so much pain, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like of just, you know, my background software, it's not even mechanical engineering. Um, and so I've had to learn a lot and, you know, and now, you know, now, now the team's a little bit bigger and, and obviously brings a lot more expertise than, than we had in the early days. But, um, but I think that the, I think the pain is valuable. I think the pain, you know, it's very uncomfortable, uh, to, to push through, you know, things you don't know, um, and through uncertainty. Um, but I think it's like you always come out stronger and coming out, coming out of it, having learned so much more and being so much smarter and more informed, um, you know, by those mistakes and by those learnings. Yeah. I recently heard from a, a trusted advisor, someone who's, you know, built several companies and led fortune, led P HR at a fortune 50 company and also has, has run consulting and small pro companies. And, question of like what how, how do you hire and his feedback is the, the, to the first rule is try like hell not to because <laughs> one chest your assumptions do you actually need someone in that role and right. figure out do you have people who can step in and fill that role and if you don't then you will have a very clear understanding of what are the gaps that you need to go hire for if you just yep. hire whenever you think maybe you need someone in a certain role then like you're, you're making a guess and it's, it's hard sometimes to do that work of looking at like what are the exact reasons why this person is needed within this organization? And then that obviously feeds down the requirements for the characteristics and the skill sets that the person needs to, to bring. So, yeah, I think that's super interesting. And I also I wanted to get your thought on, you mentioned scrappiness, grit, team taking ownership. How, how do you build that, especially as the team scales, right? So, like, personally, I'm very good at driving myself and going through the pain. And I think, right, like, I imagine you even when you were building this one-off personal camper van like if you're like me no problem working until midnight on this thing and just doing whatever you need to to get it done i have a harder time pushing people around me or like right there i don't know if they're going to care is like i don't know if anyone cares quite as much as you or buys in quite as much like you right you the founder you own, own the company you're driving like how, how do you think about as you're growing the team trying to keep those characteristics and expand that within a larger company base yeah, I mean it, it's hard. Um, it's it's really hard, but I mean, first off, we look for it during the hiring process. Obviously, um, you know, look for it in in how people talk and the experiences they've had, and yeah, just just kind of looking for signs of that of that grit and that scrappiness and and hardworkingness. Um, and uh and then you know and then we just kind of embody it 
and so I think it, I think it's contagious, you know, to especially to the, to the right people. Um, so, you know, when 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 every you know it's like when the rest of your team is here, you know, working late or um, wh- whatever it is, uh, I think I think that uh, you know it, it motivates people. Um, so again, like we're all very hands on, so nobody's you know, nobody's kind of sitting back or, or anything like that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. And, and so I guess what you, you, you've touched on this a, a bit, but so where, where the company is now, and then also look forward the next six, 12, eight, 18 months with, with the seed funding round and things. So how, how do you th- see things progressing? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I actually would add one more thing to that last answer, which is, yeah, go for it. Uh, give, giving people ownership too. Right. So I think, you have to empower people because otherwise it's a bit of a contradiction, right? It's, it's a contradiction to, to really expect a lot out of someone. And then at the same time, not, not empower them to, to take ownership and to, um, uh, you know, define, you know, the things that they think are important, um, you know, within, within decision-making and design and things like that. So, uh, that's that's probably that's probably the other important thing there. I guess um, if I could, if I can jump on that real quick. So when when you say take ownership, I always think of um, Jack Willink. I don't know if if that comes to mind for you. If you even think of him, if you even read his stuff. Um, but is that is that uh, extreme ownership? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, I have and, read it. And and so yeah, and, and his, his co-founder or his uh, his co-author Life Babin was was on the podcast um, maybe about a year ago, and oh, wow. uh, I, I asked him and. Spent, spent some time with them um at, yeah, our, our leadership team spent some time with them at gettysburg going through the battlefield and learning kind of leadership less, lessons and stuff and right. really cool stuff but like I, I asked him a similar question of how do you build this and as a team and like it's such a dichotomy but like yeah the, the answer to how do you have people take ownership is often they'd say give ownership how do you have people respect you well respect them like the it's a it's a two-sided like this isn't a one-way yeah. communication yeah. stream this is a ecosystem and a system here where like the way you treat someone and the opportunities that they have has a huge impact on how they show up and yeah it's always e- easier said than done especially when there's uh work that needs to be done at a high level that you are, are passionate about to you know let, let that off and finding trying to find the balance between like being connected and hands-on while also giving people freedom but uh, yeah that, that feels like an important part of the equation yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm I'm still down, you know, doing some electrical wiring, you know, as recently as this last G2 build, right? So I, th- I think you just have to, like I said, you have to embody it and you have to ask the whole team to embody it. And when, when people, like you said, when people start acting in that way of taking ownership and taking initiative and not ever having the attitude of, you know, oh, that's not that's not my job. That's not my problem. Um, you know, I think I think that's contagious, um, and I think it's it's hard not to really respect that when you see it. And so, mm-hmm. I think that's motivating motivating to see you know to see other people act that way, and it's it's inspiring to you know to push other people to to kind of act in the same way. Cool. Yeah, I think I think we're aligned there. So. I guess yeah. If you, if you don't mind talking about kind of the the, for, the forecast and forward looking kind of vision of the organization, where uh, 
yeah, where, where do you think, see things going? Yeah, so we just launched the G2, the, this electric uh, electric camper van. Um, we also just took it on a 1,500-mile road trip around the state of Michigan, uh, which was which was pretty exciting. Uh, we took it up to the UP and up past Marquette, uh, to, up to Big Bay, and then back down uh, through like Sleeping Bear Dunes and Grand Rapids and um, back to Detroit. And, um, and that was kind of to prove out the viability. And now we are uh, building and shipping these G2s. So we're sort of uh, taking customer orders and, and uh, planning out the production schedule over the next, you know, six, six months of these G2s. Um, so basically starting to scale up um, and, and build that program, the, G, the G2 program. Um, early next year, we plan to do our first, um, you know, seed fundraising round and uh, launch the towable trailer um, sometime next year, which will be a lightweight electric um, aerodynamic RV trailer that you can that you can tow. Um, and I don't necessarily want to say say too much more than that, but we we do have um, we do have some other plans. And, and like I said at the beginning, I think we we kind of see the the future of the company as um, you know building this this giant outdoor recreation technology brand. Um, and I think there's a lot of product opportunities and, you know, RVs is, is sort of the first. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember if I asked this, I, I had meant to, but I, I don't know if I actually did to, yeah. Why, why exactly? So we talked around this point, but to clarify, so why, why is this the product strategy? So you're, you're building this electric mm-hmm. outdoor brand to why, why is the product strategy as it is thus far? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, I think a lot of people kind of thought I was crazy for starting with camper vans, to be honest. Anyone who knows anything about the RV market knows that camper vans are, they represent a a fairly small volume amount uh, within the RV market. So again, RV market's huge. It's, you know, over a $50 billion market. Um, It's growing. It's, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of units sold per year. And there's motorhomes that you drive. Um, so think Class A, you know, Robin Williams, RV movie, also camper vans. Like these are all mm-hmm. motorhomes. And then there's trailers that you tow. Turns out that the trailer market is a lot bigger by volume. Why? Well, uh, I guess two reasons. One, they're a lot cheaper than motorhomes because they don't have entire powertrains historically. And two, uh, a lot of people like already own cars and trucks. And so it's like, do you want to go buy another vehicle, expensive vehicle that you drive, or do you want to just buy something that you can hitch and unhitch based on when you're taking it out? So it ma- makes a lot of sense. Um, motorhomes are so much more expensive though, on average, that by vault, by dollar amount of market size, the, the difference is not, not huge between those two segments, which is, which is kind of interesting. Um, so that was sort of an early, early realization. The other thing is that, um, you know, there really uh, wasn't much happening in the motorhome side of the RV market in terms of electrification. And that was really disappointing to me as someone who, you know, came from that side and I built the camper van and I had all this personal passion for, for camper vans and hashtag van life and <clears throat> sort of all the, um, you know, recent popularity around that. And so I saw an opportunity to, to kind of get something to market uh, 
again, much faster. Um, you know, and it turns out that when you're building on top of an OEM platform uh, that that already exists, you can you really can get something to market much faster. And so, what we've tried to do in a short amount of time is build a brand from nothing and get a product to market and in customers' hands and build a team and um, you know kind of establish ourselves in the space and get learnings on design and manufacturing and assembly. Um, get actual feedback from customers, from paying customers. And I think that we've accomplished all of that. Uh, and so that was sort of the strategy behind starting with electric camper vans. And then, you know, if you've, if you've looked at our website, we've had a, a 3D rendering, very, very early mock-up 3D rendering of an aerodynamic towable trailer for a long time. Uh, it's been up on the website. And so, you know, that's always something that we've planned on doing eventually but but again now we can sort of take all of these learnings both on the engineering side and the the, the market customer side uh, and, and I think bring them into that that space and you know I think by definition building that trailer as opposed to um, doing what looks a lot more like an upfit of an OEM platform on the on the motorhome side means that there's sort of more, complex fabrication involved on that trailer side. And so, uh, and, and by extension, potentially more sort of investment into tooling and stuff like that. And so having the experiences and the learnings and the, the team, um, you know, built over the last year, uh, you know, in this product and market that then now we can sort of go into this next phase of the company, this next product line, you know, with all of that under our belt, uh, I think, is going to be really, really valuable. Yeah, cool. And you mentioned the the trailers historically have not had a propulsion system. Maybe maybe a different situation when you get into electric trailers and or being towed by electric vehicles that struggle to uh, to deal with towing for long distances unless you get a little help. Yeah. Well, I think that this is a really interesting existential question for the automotive industry moving forward because. Uh, you know, when you do build a powertrain into a trailer, you're raising the cost, uh, very, very substantially. So I think there's this question of like, what do we think that the future looks like? Is it, it, you know, clearly there's a huge problem with EVs towing anything today. It, It completely destroys your range, you know, are we heading to a future where all trailers, not just RVs, landscaping trailers, equipment trailers, you know, every kind of, you know, there's lots of trailers, uh, you know, in use for, for lots of different companies today. Um, you know, as we shift to electric vehicles, will all trailers have to just be way more expensive because they'll all need to have powertrains? You know, I, I don't know. That seems like quite a, quite a big proposition. Um, you know, why can't we make the, why can't we make the EVs better? (laughs) Why can't we make the battery technology better so that, you know, they're more capable of towing without having the range, you know, so reduced. So, you know, there's something, it's a question that we're thinking a lot about and, and, um, trying to have a, um, you know, a point of view on when we get closer to launching our product. Yeah, cool. Looking and excited to, to watch along and see, see how that evolves. So. 
Um, yeah, Tim, really appreciate you taking the time. This has been fun getting into the background of the company, what you guys are doing, some of the things you got in the future, talking about how you're building the company, how you're thinking about these things. It's, yeah, I, I, I've really enjoyed this. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, appreciate you joining. But, uh, for sure. The, Thanks for having me. Yeah, maybe last question. Uh, anything we missed or that you were hoping to talk about, or if not, just anything that you're hoping that someone listens to this takes away or uh, requested action or anything like that? Hmm. Um, well, maybe one thing that I didn't mention is we're, we're based in Detroit. Um, obviously, you know that, Brandon, but, um, you know, that, that was kind of an interesting, you know, interesting move that we didn't initially plan on. Uh, we were kind of looking at some other cities and um, we, we got involved with, with some folks here who made a really compelling case for us to come, come to Michigan and come build this company in Detroit. And it's interesting because we are uh, we're only about a three hour drive from Elkhart, Indiana, where 85% of the RVs in the United States are, are manufactured and that entire supply chain, you know, that's based out of there. Um, you know, and then we're in, in Detroit, obviously where the, the whole automotive industry and a lot of, you know, manufacturing and composite fabrication and, and stuff like that exists. And so, um, you know, we're, we're, we, and, and I personally am, am really optimistic about about the city and the state and this being a great place uh to build any company but especially this company um and so yeah very bullish on on detroit awesome yeah i'll have to clip that and send it to tim slusser and and if you but but i i certainly agree right i mean I, I'm, I'm from this area but worked for boeing in south carolina moved back and didn't really want to get into this industry because i thought the automotive industry was old and slow and not that exciting but like especially over the last five years or so like things things have changed there's, there's a lot i mean the fact that you guys are here there's and there's, there's a lot of other really cool stuff being done here so uh yeah i i agree with the sentiment there cool place to to live and, and do work and everything else yeah absolutely cool well, well thanks, thanks again thanks a lot yeah thanks a lot for having me really appreciate it well there you have it i hope you enjoyed that conversation with sam shapiro what so what stands out? So one, I mean, the, the space is interesting, right? Electrification applied to the rec recreational vehicle space type of product they're looking at. I mean, catering to, right, people are trying to get closer to nature, closer to an authentic outdoor experience. Electric vehicles, awesome application for that. If you can get past the range challenges, 250-mile G2, I've seen the vehicle. It's, it's cool, cool stuff. Um, it's, yeah, awesome product for them to really dip their toe into this market with a viable product that they've sold and are selling and will continue to sell to customers. But I guess what really stands out, though, is I mean, the the way in which Sam and the team are building this company, right? So talk towards the end about the intentionality of why this is the first product, why it's certainly not the, the last product, but why, why they're starting here and how they see this as a way to kind of get a foot in a foothold and build a brand and grow from there to get towards the real vision and the, the greater vision that they're pursuing and doing it in a practical scrappy gritty way and i mean personally that that very closely aligns with the way that i think about building a business and trying to excel in this space, not just raising a bunch of money and having an awesome valuation that looks cool and gets you on, you know, in magazines and news articles and stuff like that, but doesn't actually have a 
viable product or a profitable, sustainable business on the back end. And I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about the way Sam's doing this. The fact that he's doing it here in Detroit, the product they have right now, awesome place to start. Excited about where they're going from here. So really fun discussion. Sam's a friend. If you're looking for a job, looking for someone to work with, I've had nothing but great experiences with with Sam and the, uh, and the grounded team. I highly recommend checking them out, reaching out if you're, if you're interested, (laughs) buying a vehicle if you're, if you're in the market there. And, uh, yeah, I, I got a lot of this out of this. Hope you did too. As always, really appreciate you listening. It's more to come next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. If you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of tens to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast.